This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher for MLB.com, joined here by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. It is Thursday, October 29th, and we have a World Series champion. Dodgers have won the World Series for the first time since 1988. Hey, Matt, did anything happen in Game 6? Was there anything notable about that game that we'll be talking about for, I don't know, forever? I mean, mean, it's it's we're going to talk about the decision to lift Blake Snell but I almost wonder, are we going to remember the World Series this year, World Series champions, as not so much being the Dodgers as we are not the Rays, if that makes any sense? Um, no, I think because of the narrative around the Dodgers in 32 years, that will kind of be uh, that will that will that will kind of carry the day. It was kind of a kind of a long drought as far as these things you know go, especially for a team that's in the postseason almost every year. So I think that 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 kind of that that um, that will end up carrying carrying the day. Um, but uh, yes, it was certainly a memorable final game um, and one that uh, we'll be talking about for things that happened on <laughs> on and off. I guess they all happened on the field, some uh, during the game and some after. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about the number one reason beyond all other reasons that the Rays lost that game, the indisputable top reason, their offense was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not where you thought I was going to go and we're going to get to Blake Snell in a minute. Um, the Rays in that game had five hits, one run, a first inning, second batter, really. Randy Rosarena home run. That was basically it. I know people are going to lose their minds over Snell and Cash, and that's totally fine. But you don't beat the Dodgers with one run, do you? Even in the entire World Series, they hit 216, an on-base percentage of 275, slugging below 400. And that includes Randy Rosarena. I don't have it handy what they did without him, but I feel like what's easily getting lost in all of the hysteria over the pitching decision is A, the Rays offense wasn't very good. And B, after Tony Gonsolin came in for the Dodgers and, you know, they thought he was going to be like a traditional starter and he didn't make it out at the second inning, right? So then he's followed by Dylan Floro, Alex Wood, Pedro Baez, Victor Gonzalez, Bruce Argaral, Julio Urias, and every single one of those guys threw zeros, you know, hit there, walk there, but no runs. I don't think we are, depending on which perspective you want to take, crediting the Dodger uh, cavalcade of arms enough or demeriting the Rays offense enough. But to me, that is what I'm going to remember is just the fact that all of these Dodger relievers, uh, they bullpened their way to a World Series in, in game six. That's what stands out to me here. And it wasn't just game six. Obviously, in game six, it was the bullpen game, whereas in previous games, the, you know, the, the Dodgers had like, you know, when they threw Kershaw and Bueller, they were throwing elite starters. But I mean, I'm looking at these stats for the Rays throughout the entire series, and it's it is ugly. <laughs> um, I mean, everyone was talking like, oh, it was like, oh, Brendan Lau finally broke out. Yes, he had three home runs. Those are the only three hits he had in the series. <laughs> His batting average John Boston play was zero for the series. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike Zunino had a 180 OPS. That's OPS, 180. Um, 
Joey Wendell, 327. Austin Meadows, 375. Willie Adamas, who didn't hit the entire postseason and was like, you know, he was like a great, you know, a great cheerleader and made some nice plays in the field, but was just terrible at the plate. OPS of 381 in, uh, in the World Series, yes, I'm talking about on base plus slugging numbers that are normally, you know, around like 800 to 900 when they're good. Um, so this was a team that was totally, totally shut down by Dodgers pitching. They didn't, I mean, they didn't really hit in the, in the postseason in general. It was really just the Randy show. Um, and that carried its way through the um, through the World Series. And, you know, that's the focal point ended up being, oh, my goodness, how could they take Blake Snell out in the sixth inning? But to your point, the offense was just brutal. And credit, I mean, credit to the Dodgers pitchers um, because they deserve it. They uh, they shut him down. Yeah, they absolutely did. Okay, let's talk about the Blake Snell decision. And it almost doesn't matter how uh, logical we get or how much we try to explain this. It, it doesn't matter because this will always, I think, be remembered as like a Bill Buckner-esque moment, like this screw up that you can't possibly talk your way around. And I do want to preface this before we get into what should have happened, what might have happened. Um, I would not have taken Blake Snell out at that exact moment. There is like this whole straw man argument that's come up that says analytics says take Snell out. Analytics lost the raise the game. I follow a lot of really smart baseball nerds on Twitter. And I can tell you 99% of them at that time were like, I don't know about this. I'm not so sure this is a good idea. It's not like this was universally nerds saying, oh yeah, this is a great idea. You should definitely take him out right now and watch the blow up in his face. I think Snell... Uh, excuse me, Cash, was a little too aggressive there. But I'm also going to say I would not have kept in Snell that much longer. All right, here is the stage. If somehow you missed the stage, Snell was, and I hate this word so much, dealing uh, nine strikeouts. He allowed one earned run through uh, five and a third. Or actually, I guess it was uh, the scoreless, right? Because the run that got hit on him was actually when Nick Anderson came in. So anyway, uh, bottom of the sixth, and he got AJ Pollock to pop out. And he allowed a single at Austin Barnes, and here comes Kevin Cash, 73 pitches into the game to lift Blake Snell. And as you can imagine, if you are a fan of traditional baseball and you liked Jack Morris throwing 900 pitches in the 1991 World Series, you were pretty upset by this. And if you felt that way, you probably gained more than a little bit of satisfaction by the fact that Nick Anderson came in, allowed a double to Mookie Betts, a wild pitch, a fielder's choice, a fly ball didn't make it out of the inning himself, and now the Rays are down 2-1 they would end up losing by the score of three to one. So it was pretty clear to me at the time that the thought process here was third time through the order because it was literally the third time through the order uh, that Mookie Betts was going to be coming up. And that's when he left. Now, the numbers here are irrefutable. Snell is worse. Not really the third time so much, but the second time, actually. He's very good the first time, and he gets worse the second and third time. He also never really pitches deep into games. So there's that. I, I still think it's important to remember, you do not turn into a pumpkin like the exact moment that the third time comes up. But what I think was happening here was that, uh, first of all, there was a plan and it wasn't just Kevin Cash's plan. It was the entire Rays front office plan. But he was looking at what had happened to Snell uh, in the pitches before. When he threw a curveball uh, for Pollock, that was a pop out. That was his slowest pitch of the entire night when he gave up a base hit to uh, who is that Austin Barnes? I think Barnes, he, yeah. yeah. Earlier in that plate appearance, he threw a ball 94.3 miles an hour earlier in the game. He'd been up at 97. So that's why I kind of throw out the idea a little bit of, well, he, you know, he struck these guys out before. And it's like, yeah, when he's throwing 97, sure. When he's throwing 94, that's, that's not the same kind of pitcher to me. 
I'm I'm just gonna skip entirely the terrible takes about Mookie Betts can't hit lefties because that's a ridiculous small sample. Um, I also I got a kick here of all the people who are like, oh, Mookie Betts didn't hit lefties this year, so you should have kept him in. Somehow, conveniently, all those people missed the fact that Mookie Betts has traditionally crushed Blake Snell. Right, <laughs> 304 average, 370 on base, 522 slugging in 27 plate appearances. That also doesn't really matter. But I guess when you're trying to make an argument, you pick the things that you think uh, do matter. So before we get into who he brought in, what would you have done if you were cashed right there? I think people wanted him to stay in and throw a complete game. I let him face bets and then either he's gotten out of the inning and then I kind of review my options the next inning or he's given up another hit and then suddenly it's not so controversial to take him out. Um, I think that it's, I mean, I, I think people want, the, the thing is he was never going to throw a complete game. That's the thing. It's like people, I, I understand there's this this desire to want this, like, as you alluded to Jack Morris, this like Jack Morris moment, um, because that's great. I mean, a starting pitcher going the distance, especially in the close postseason game is great theater. And I think that what we're seeing here, and we've seen more and more in the baseball postseason and baseball and sports in general, frankly, is that what is, there's this constant tension between what is good for entertainment versus what is good for winning. And pitcher usage is a kind of at the at the at the the forefront of it. Um, I would have. I do think that like how why um, I totally buy into the idea of like a pitcher's always you know a pitcher's dealing until he isn't. And like, like I think it's like you know your performance in the previous like you know two batters isn't necessarily predictive of uh, your, your performance you know in the previous you know however many batters isn't necessarily um, predictive of what you're going to do. I do think there is something to be said for having a feel of the moment and like how he's pitching. There's a difference between the way Snell was pitching on that night versus how he pitched in the LCS and DS, you know, where he was like, you know, there was a sharpness to his pitches. He, you know, he had allowed what two hits, no walks, nine strikeouts. Like this was the best Blake Snell is. And like that, that can't entirely be discounted. But at that point I was going to start having um, a short lease for all, all the reasons you you've discussed third time through the order. He hasn't pitched through six. He hasn't pitched a complete six innings since the middle of the 2019 season. Like he either a it's partially because the Rays don't use their pitchers that well, but also he's just not, he's not really generally an efficient pitcher who goes deep into games. He he generally labors. So at most he was going to pitch through the rest of that inning. Um, so the idea that like that we were robbed of this like oh this like complete game that was going to happen like that was definitely never going to happen. No, I agree with you on that, and it didn't bother me at all really that Anderson started to warm. You know, if anything, I would have also, I think, had a lefty warm because it's the sixth inning of game six. Like there is at no point you should be without uh, a pitching option to go to. And, you know, I, I, again, I want to reiterate, I think Cash came and got out Snell too soon, but I do think people are focusing a little bit too much on just third time through the order stuff. You know, like I said, his velocity was down by a couple of ticks. Uh, I don't have the numbers handy. I would assume his, you know, movement and spin rate were probably down a little bit too. It's not like there are warning signs and when we're we're warning signs, because when people say, you know, you should use the eye test, I think what they're really saying is you should have just looked at the box score, right? And said, (laughs) oh, I see some zeros and that's my eye test. The eye test is really what what do his pitches look like? What's his velocity? You know, like that's not even advanced data necessarily, even if you don't care about third time through the order. So while I think we agree pulling him there was maybe a little too soon, I don't think it's a great deal too soon. Right. Neither one of us expected he was going into the eighth inning. So that's not 
the biggest problem to me. Like you can and, defend and that move. And I'll just want to interject on one thing on that is that like there's also this narrative that like oh it's the Rays because they're like so deep in analytics that they're like analytics made this decision that ruined it. Like the Dodgers are run by Andrew Freeman. And they basically hired him because of what he did with the Rays. And we're like, oh, we want you to do what you do with the Rays and do it in Dodge, do it in LA with a much bigger payroll. And in game one of that series, the Dodgers took out Clayton, Clayton Kershaw after six innings, one run allowed, 78 pitches. In game five, they took him out with two outs and nobody on in the sixth inning after 85 pitches and two runs allowed. It's not dissimilar from what the Rays did with Snell. I mean, these are the kinds of decisions that would have seemed unfathomable five years ago, you know, when we, when we were debating whether the Mets should have kept Matt Harvey in for the ninth inning of game five of the World Series. But like, this is the way teams, not just the Rays, are managing their pitchers right now. So it was like amazing that there was already this, amne- this amnesia. They're like, oh, the Rays, how could they do this? Like, the Dodgers had basically done the same thing with Kershaw. Uh, yeah. That, before. that whole thing, like, oh, only the Rays are the analytical. Get out of here with that. The, the Dodgers are just the Rays who spend more money and have a prettier ballpark. Like that is the only difference. And, and you're right about the amnesia. It's not just Kershaw. This happened in game two, like in game one, they left in Glasnow too long in game one. Right. And then in game two, they left in Blake Snell and, and he gave up a run. Like this is not new. I, I was also thinking back um, to game seven of the 2017 world series when Lance McCullers was pitching a shutout through what, like two and a third, three and a third. I can't remember what it was. But he, you know, did not look good, right? He'd hit a couple guys and he's all over the place. Like the box score said zero, but he was not dominating. And AJ Hinch came out and, and took him out, throwing a shutout in game seven. And it ended up being absolutely the right thing. So I agree with you totally on that. Um, the bigger question to me is who he brought in. That's going to be a larger conversation. Let's take a quick break here. And we'll come back and talk about Nick Anderson or not Nick Anderson. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mike Petriello, joined by Matt Myers. We are in the midst of dissecting Game six of the World Series, particularly Kevin Cash's decision to lift Blake Snell in the sixth inning. So Matt and I pretty much agree. You don't want to lift Snell right there, but you're also probably not going to go with him that much longer. To me, the much bigger issue was who he brought in. Nick Anderson during the last two seasons, I think is probably the best reliever 
in baseball. He had been absolutely dominant. So you sort of look at these things, Mookie Betts in that situation. Do you want Blake Snell or do you want regular season Nick Anderson? I probably go with regular season Nick Anderson. You know, that's how good he's been. Postseason Nick Anderson, it was absolutely dreadful. He gave up, let's see, he got into 10 games and he allowed runs in eight of them. Uh, including his last seven in a row, if I'm reading the box score right. He right. had, in, yeah, he, in 14 innings, uh, nine strikeouts and four walks. You know, he was certainly not missing bats the way he did. And I know people like to talk about, well, you know, that's small sample. How come I can't talk about Mookie Betts against lefties in a small sample, but you can talk about Nick Anderson's ERA over five? It's not really because of the outcomes. It's because of the way his pitches were different. I mean, we had talked about this last week. I've tweeted about it a couple of times. His fastball control was nowhere near what it used to be when he would dot top the zone. The movement on his breaking pitch was different. Like you you knew right away that this was not Nick Anderson who, you know, murderer of, of batters. This was a guy with a beard who also happened to be wearing an Anderson jersey. And I was stunned that that's who came in, that they still had such confidence in him. When you could have brought in Diego Castillo or Pete Fairbanks or maybe even Ryan Thompson. Like this is the thing I keep coming back to. It's not, did you lift Snell too soon? It's why did you go to Anderson right there? It's weird. It it felt like Kevin Cash had kept his faith in, or in the Rays, you know, in general, had kept their faith in Anderson, but lost their faith in Snell when it was Snell who had actually pitched well in games two and game six. And Anderson who had been pretty bad the entire postseason. He gave up nine runs in 14 and two thirds innings in the postseason and two runs in 16 and the third innings during the regular season, just to give you a, a sense of the overall uh, uh, dichotomy there. I, I think that, yeah, it's, I think that they had this script that worked, that that they had worked for them during the regular season and early in the postseason, and they kept going back to it, and they kind of kept burning them because they were expect, they kept expecting, it was almost like, it felt like wishful thinking of like, okay, Nick Anderson's finally going to turn it around. And I started to notice it really against the Astros when he just stopped striking people out. You know, during the regular season, he was striking out like 45% of batters. And during the postseason, it was like 20% of batters. And he had three straight outings against the Astros where he did not strike out a single batter, which yes, the Astros are tough to strike out. But like that's just for an elite reliever to not strike out anyone in three straight um, outings is a huge, a huge red flag. So it, it seemed like they should have, if they're going to do that, they should have been prepared with someone else because Anderson just, whether it's just he was a mechanical thing or maybe he was just tired from, I mean, it was a shortened season. He spent time on the IL. It's not crazy to think that maybe he was just like not really himself anymore or it could have been any number of things, but he just was not the Nick Anderson we've seen in the last couple of years. No, certainly not. And I go back to one of the games against the Yankees in the ALDS where he came out and threw two and a thirds innings. Uh, in, in the middle of game five. And it was like right after that, it almost seemed like that was what kind of got him because he was not the same after that at all. And like I said, you could see it in the pitch movement. You could see it in the in the location. And I, I haven't seen, I'm curious if you've seen, have you seen any explanations from Cash as to why it was Anderson other than like, you know, he was our guy? Uh, I have not. Uh, it doesn't mean what he said, but I didn't. I didn't see it. But it's. It's. I mean, who? I guess. I mean, I. I'm the world's biggest Diego Castillo fan, so I would have said maybe Castillo, who ended up who ended up probably being their most effective reliever in the World Series and didn't pitch in that last game, which was kind of a bummer. But because um, that's the thing, the, the, the other thing for the Rays, not just we talked about their hitters not hitting. You know, they had the, the, the you know the quote unquote the stable, their really, this, this deep bullpen, and they weren't that great in the World Series either. And that kind of, I mean, the race had sort of this blueprint of how to beat you. And when the bullpen's not dominant, it's 
it's it kind of it, the the blueprint doesn't really work. No, it doesn't really work. Um, so yeah, I, I don't I I don't think that's this is how this is going to be remembered. I, I think people are always going to look at this as a a big botch job by Kevin Cash, and I think that's a little unfair. Although I I did think that that he made a mistake. How do you look back? I guess at the World Series and the, and the postseason as uh, as an entirety. Like I thought the World Series in October was pretty fun. Um, like a lot of memorable moments, both in this series and a previous series. And then, you know, obviously there's some awkwardness at the end of game six, which we'll get to in a second. Actually, now that I think about it, you might almost say October was dealing right up until it wasn't because then things got weird. But before we get to that, um, this was this was a fun postseason. And I say that as someone who didn't really like the idea of the expanded playoffs, but I ended up enjoying this uh, this quite a bit once we got to it. Yeah, for sure. And I did I did I did end up liking the um the off days in the World Series to kind of reset the pitchers, and I kind of ideally let some of the, the pitcher, the starters in particular, um, pitch on full rest and kind of get to see the see the best of them. And I think we did, especially with Kershaw and Snell and Bueller. So that was that was a factor. It was, I mean, it was it was great to have. I liked sort of the the mayhem of the the sixteen teams. Um, you know, it definitely we, but I do think you know what we saw in Game Six is you know it's where the game is going. You know, this idea of you know, pitch. You know, it's, it's. I shouldn't even say where it's going. It's it's where it has been going and where it is right now. It's just the, the so much of the conversation is about like, oh, we want starting pitchers to pitch deeper in the games, and this criticism that the pitchers have gotten soft, and that you know, so much of the broadcast in the post game is like, oh, in my day, you know, we you know, men were men, and we you know, it just it's the game. The game has changed, and I kind of it just bothers me that we can't. It's so the, the Snell decision and a lot of these decisions about relievers and taking starters out are interesting to debate on their own merits. And it frustrates me that we cannot have debates about them on the merits of the decisions within the context of the modern game. It always becomes a referendum on the modern game versus the old game. And it's just a shame because I think it really takes away from what's going on on the field. And like I watch other sports and like, you know, not every NFL game is a referendum on, oh, I back when running backs used to carry 30 times a game and like, it's oh, it's such a shame. I mean, you get some of that, but not, it doesn't dominate every every playoff yeah. broadcast. Yeah, um, I, I heard, I agree with you. I heard people saying like, oh, you know, um, this this devaluing of the starting pitcher kind of hurts the story and it, it, it hurts with the baseball watching experience and like, that's a personal choice. So fine, but I kind of laughed about that a little bit because it's like, okay, Snell is striking out everybody and then Snell comes out now there's more action, and now there's a flashpoint that we'll be talking about forever. Like, did this game end up being less interesting because Snell didn't try to go all nine innings? Like, I argue, no, we'll never stop talking about this game. And if you wanted action, well, we got more balls in play. So I, I sort of push back on that uh, idea a little bit. And then I guess the final thing for this game is obviously um, Justin Turner got pulled in the middle of it, right, seventh inning, I guess, which was surprising at the time. And we thought maybe he got hurt. And then it turns out, a positive COVID test, which was unfortunate timing for someone who's been, you know, besides Kershaw, maybe the heart and soul of the team. And then he comes back out on the field and celebrates without a mask. And the whole thing was just super duper uncomfortable. Um, I, I definitely watched the trophy celebration with like my hands over my eyes and text messages blowing up because uh, that whole thing was very uncomfortable. It does sound uh, the latest reports are that Maybe one player on the Rays is also tested positive, but everybody else on both teams has not, and they have returned home uh, except for Turner and that player. I feel like there might be repercussions for this next season, and he's a free agent, right? <laughs> like the, there was a a statement issued by the league where they said they were, you know, looking into this, and obviously they were disappointed 
in his actions. I think there's probably a fair share of blame to be pointed in a million different directions. Um, now, I'm wondering if this affects him in free agency at all. Uh, that's that's our next thing we're going to have to look forward to because it's already the offseason here. Um, I guess, although I think everyone sort of assumed it was a foregone conclusion he would end up back with the Dodgers. Probably. So. <laughs> um, per, perhaps not. I think uncomfortable is a good is a good um, a good a good word for it. There are two other things, the two other kind of takeaways from the postseason that I do want to want to get to talk about and get your take on. Um, uh, one of which is, and I guess sort of the other big one of the other big stories of the postseason, which is the breakout performance of Randy Rosarena. Um, and now it's like, you know, he's only pitched, he's, he's basically hit in his career. If you count postseason, he's at like, you know, close to 200 plate appearances, I think. Uh, 190, like, I think is the answer. Yeah. And it's like, is he, should we consider, is he a star, right? Like, is this real? Like, what are we, what are we seeing? Cause you know, we've seen players have, you know, crazy postseasons before. You know, I think the best probably comp is David Freeze, who kind of came out of nowhere in 2011. Of course he was like 28 at the time. Um, and Rosemary is not that, not old, but he's not like. Super young, he's twenty five. He'll play next year at twenty six. What is your take? Well, my take is, I think I tweeted this the other day. Look, it was as we progressed further, and he kept hitting home runs and getting base hits. It was sort of hard to figure out, like, are we watching a guy who's on like the best five week stretch of his entire life, or are we watching the birth of a new star? And I think the most compelling answer to that is maybe both. Like, he can be a very good player, and this could still be the best five weeks of his entire life. Like, if we're going into next season and expecting he is the new Mike Trout, I think we're going to be a little disappointed because uh, that's not fair. But, you know, and I, I detailed this last last time we talked, you know, I went through and I looked at everybody who had had a start like this regular and postseason through a similar number of plate appearances. And if you cut it off at, at the integration era since 1947, he's now, I think, in the top 10. I think he's moved up into the top 10 or 12. And the guys ahead of him are, you know, all stars, Hall of Famers, you know, Jordan Alvarez from last year. So we don't know how that's going to turn out. I think the I think the weakest career on the list ahead of him is Alvin Davis, who was the 1984 Rookie of the Year, one of the better hitters of the 1980s, didn't end up having like a historic career or anything. And what it says to me is he's he's gotten far enough into this without even trying to adjust for the quality of postseason pitching he's seen that it's difficult for me to believe this is all a fluke. You know, I mean, we've seen guys have great months. Um Aristides Aquino, right, from the Reds last year, had a great month, didn't do anything this year. So, like, it's certainly possible. But I see this guy doing this against postseason pitching with a pretty good scouting report through the minors. I remember I liked him at the time of the trade. There were pretty good scouting reports. I am not going to go out so far as to say, you know, he is a top 10 player in the big leagues. But I'm pretty sure I know who I'm going to select for my rookie of the year pick next year because he is somehow still eligible for that. Yeah, I was talking to our our friends uh, from MLB Pipeline, and they're sort of debating like, how do we rank Randy as a prospect next year, right? Like, where it's so like it's kind of unprecedented of like you know a guy with like you know to have this kind of track record just because of the expanded playoffs and going all the way through. Like normally, even the rookies who who debut in um, September, you know, it's you don't get really that good of a glimpse of them. So even when they they maintain their rookie eligibility the next year, it still feels kind of just like a little bit of. A little bit of a take, like last year we saw a little bit of Gavin Lux, but it wasn't like enough to really form an opinion on him, right? But you know, Rosarena went and he got, you know, like whatever it was, like ninety plate appearances in the postseason or whatever, and it was like um, it. It we now and he was the star of the postseason, so it really changes what we think of him. I mean, to me, it's it's to me, it's um, 
I, I go along with what you said. And you also look at Statcast and the quality of contact in terms of expected weight on base. Um, he, I looked it up. If you include postseason, he was like tenth in baseball this year, right? And that's like you can't really fake that. This is not like some sort of like Babbitt, you know, batting high average on balls and play fueled like run, especially since you know he kept hitting home <laughs> hitting home runs. So um, I think it's I think we're looking at an, an above average major league hitter. He's still he's not great in the outfield, so. Um, that's, you know, maybe limits he's fast, but isn't, he's not necessarily graceful out there. But, um, I think we are, um, we're looking at what should be, uh, should be a very, a very good career. Um, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, about this too, before you jumped to your next topic, you were talking with the pipeline guys, like about how do you rate him? I was having a similar conversation. So every year at MLB network, we do top 10 right now. So we rank the top 10 players for the upcoming season at every single position. And I'm, I'm trying to think ahead, like, what do I do with a Rosarena in left field? And it's actually more complicated than that because uh, Juan Soto, who is usually the number one left fielder, played right at the end of the season. And he might be considered a right fielder next year. Left field is always the weakest position. And now I've got this guy who was phenomenal without a bunch of competition around him. And I don't know what to do with it. Is it insane to rank him number one? It feels like it is. But then I don't know what else to do. Like I'm not looking forward to having to make those decisions at the end of the year. I, I, uh, it, also, I think fantasy baseball players is going to be a fascinating discussion. Yeah, of like, right. how, how do you draft him? How do you, um, how do you, what, do you what value do you put on him in, a, in an auction in an auction format? I think you know, I think you know, analytically inclined fans and, and sabermetrically inclined fans have gone a long way towards like educating like the general public about sample size and small sample sizes and what they mean. And so I keep seeing a lot of people hand waving this of like small sample size. It's like yes, it is a small sample size, but sometimes there's enough like signal within there that you have to just say like, no, this is more than just a small, I th- and I'm of the belief that I think that there's, this isn't just noise, that there's a lot of right. signal here. Um, but I've, obviously I, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. <laughs> I hope I'm not. He's fun. He's fun to watch. He's got quick hands. Um, he hits the ball really hard for some of the, you know, he's not big. So the ball jumps off his bat. There's just something about um, watching him play. Um, that is, uh, he has a certain je ne sais quoi, as they say. Very, very well said. What was your second point you wanted to mention? So Will Leach wrote a piece about this from OB.com, and I thought, you know, normally it was about the Dodgers and, like, whether or not we should be considering them a dynasty. Um, and obviously that's just, you know, dynasty is kind of like, you know, sports talk, radio talk, but we're basically sports talk radio, so, like, why not? <laughs> um, and, you know, usually a team that wins only one title um, isn't really considered a dynasty, right? It's usually about a team that wins, you know, two in a row, three in five years, that kind of thing. Um, but he put, pulled out a stat um, that I thought was really interesting, that if you go back the last four years, including postseason, the Dodgers have a winning percentage of 629. In the wild card era, that is the best winning percentage over a four-year stretch for any team. So that's better than any four-year stretch the Yankees had when they were winning their championships, and it's better than any four-year stretch the Braves have had. Of course, they have not won. Um, they've only won one championships in the wild card era, the first year of the wild card. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. I also think when you add the added context, okay, the 2017 World Series, which the Dodgers lost in seven games against a team that has subsequently been found to have been illegally stealing signs, and many people think that the Dodgers are the rightful champions or should be the rightful champions in 2017, how much does this conversation change if the Dodgers did win the World Series in 2017? Because then definitely we're talking about as a dynasty and maybe one of the great teams of all time. What is a dynasty? Is a dynasty winning titles? Is it regular season success or is it a combination of both? Because 
I think about those those you know decade ago Giants teams. They won three World Series. They only won two division titles. You know they were they were never a dominant team. I think the most wins they had in any of those years was ninety four, which is pretty good. Uh, but it's certainly not you know on pace for one sixteen like the Dodgers were this year. If, if you are a if you're a fan, you probably rather have what the Giants have. I think, but I don't think of them as a dynasty and. I feel like you can't be a dynasty if you don't have at least one ring. So you couldn't even consider the Dodgers in this conversation until this year. But now that they have it, I mean, eight division titles in a row, uh, three World Series appearances, one of which, as you said, was questionable at best. Uh, Now they've got the ring. I almost wonder if we can't answer it yet because they're not done. I think they're going to be the heavy favorite for the NL West next year and the year after that and the year after that. And maybe by the end of this, they've won 14 division titles and two rings. You know, like, is it too soon to say, I guess, is my question. Perhaps. I think I kind of count them as um, uh, a dynasty right now. I mean, if you, also, just one other thing I want to mention is the dominance of this team, right? If you look at the Dodgers' run differential per game over the last four years, I was, I was floored by this. The run differential per game over the last four years, including postseason, is 1.43 runs per game. They've On average, they've won games by 1.43 runs per game. The Yankees from 96 to 99 was 1.19. So almost like basically a quarter of a run per game. Like that is just a, the level of dominance compared to like those Yankee teams, which are considered like the great modern dynasty. Um, is just, it's, 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 the gap is huge. Then you look at, also if you look at the Giants um, from the five years when they won three World Series in five years, their average run differential was 0.26 runs per game. So... <laughs> I mean, I think that, that we may be underselling the Dodgers because of, because of you know, I, yes, you know, you'll laugh at me, oh, the lack of titles, but like, you know, they're there every year. They're probably going to still keep being there <laughs> going forward. There's no no signs of slowing down. Their core currently of Bellinger, Betts, and Seager offensively is ridiculous. And the, I mean, Seager's a free agent after next year, but they still have that group um, in 2021, not to mention Walker Bueller and Clayton Kershaw. Uh, Will Smith has established himself like the team is stacked and, um, you know, they're going to be in the playoffs again next year. And, you know, who knows? You know what I've been thinking about is I think of the Dodgers run that they've been on this year is probably the best team, you know, the most talent. Obviously, they won the World Series, but I don't think the 2020 Dodgers will necessarily be remembered in lists of like best baseball teams ever, you know, like the 27 Yankees and the 75 Reds and maybe the 2016 Cubs because of the the short season. So they won't have the most wins. They won't have the most wins above replacement. You can sort of hand wave a lot away with, with small sample size. And I think that's maybe, maybe that's what they're going to miss the most. Like, I don't think you can put the asterisk on the world series because um, obviously they had to go through a tougher postseason tournament than anyone has ever had. They beat the number one team in the American league and it's never been their issue to get to the world series. Like the fact that the regular season was 60 games not 162. I think change is nothing. They're going to get here either way, obviously. But I, I do think that the shortened season here probably keeps them off some of those all-time lists. And I, I guess that's a little uh, not unfair because look at the state of the world, but maybe a little disappointing because I do think you can look back at this team and say they were legitimately one of the greatest teams uh, of all time. Or am I just putting too much emphasis on the, the names on the roster? Well, I mean, you know, they'll... <laughs> The same group will basically get another chance to run it back next True. year, and maybe maybe that will be their goal. If it, you know, assuming we get 162, 162 games in, they'll say, "Well, you know, let's do this again, so that no one could say that you know we did that. You know, we were our greatness was was limited to a sixty game season." 
Before we end, uh, a brief sad note, and I'm very sorry, Matt, we didn't mention this last week, but San Diego reliever Luis Perdomo underwent Tommy John surgery and is likely to miss all of the 2021 20- season. If you're just joining us, Luis Perdomo has long been Matt's favorite player. I think you own a Perdomo jersey, and I just wanted to express my extreme sorrow that you're going to miss out on him next year. I am I'm bummed, but, uh, you know... 2022 um you know will be when he really when it finally all comes together maybe <laughs> i i hope so um so that's kind of our wrap on the 2020 season this was without question the weirdest season we've ever had i certainly hope we never see another one like it but i really did enjoy the world series in the postseason and thank you all who joined us on our uh, rebranded podcast here we're going to keep going throughout the winter we're going to record likely once a week unless there's big breaking news Next week, we will start thinking ahead to the offseason. Can you believe it's already here? Qualifying offer decisions are due on Sunday. The baseball calendar never stops. Thanks again for listening. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.